welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. There's no heroes in Test Cricket, son. Retire hurt. August guy in and he kept saying, do you need any shampoo? Do you need any conditioner? My car stunk for about a week and I couldn't get rid of the smell. But it turned out that the decanter of port had been donated to the owner of the hotel by Nelson Mandela upon his release from Robin Island and someone had nicked it. Hello, my name is Simon Lazeby and I'm a presenter on Sky Sports. You may have seen me present sports such as the F1, international rugby, England cricket and golf from around the world. However, I wanted to come and give you some information about the TWS Sports Podcast. The TWS Sports Podcast is the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. Each week, they speak to a different sports person and delve deep into their lives talking about the highs and the lows of their career and what makes them a top athlete in their sport. The TWS Sports Podcast were voted the best sports podcast in the world that promotes social equality. They picked up that honour at the 2021 Sports Podcast Awards. So if you're a sports fan and want to hear these great stories with questions from some amazing young people who promote autism, then the TWS Sports Podcast is the podcast for you. Technol Wood School is a school for autistic children and young adults, and we have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a former professional rugby player. He has played for the Saracens, Cardiff Blues and Wales. Welcome to the podcast, Tom Shanklin. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Um, before we start our podcast, we'd like to ask a few random questions before we kind of delve into your career, if that's okay? Yeah, I'm very random, so <laughs> fire away. Who's the most human, famous person in your phone book? Oh, right. Um, well, I don't have too many famous friends. Um, I would say Gethin Jones. Now, he's a TV host. He was on Blue Peter, and he's always on um bbc in the mornings really welsh that's a bonus i'm welsh too tom so that's a bonus yes exactly so yeah <laughs> he he's probably the, the most famous person um if you could trade lives with anyone for one day and one day only who would it be and why um i would like to trade lives with one day only. Wow. I was going to say Rory McIlroy because I love golf and I'd love to travel. But if it was for one day only, or oh, what do I want to do for? Maybe, maybe Rory McIlroy on the final day of the Masters. Yeah, perfect. There we are. Rory McIlroy, final day in Augusta, gunning for the green jacket. <laughs> if you could have any superpower, what? world you have and why um i think i would have the ability to be invisible yeah that's we were chatting yeah. before that and we we both said that as well it's quite a good one i have. think invisibility or or flight or reading people's minds would be quite cool but we'll go with invisibility <laughs> brilliant right thanks for asking answering them tom so we got some questions about your career now so Monday, we spent a bit of our lessons and a bit of research. So fingers crossed, we've we've done our research correctly and we've got the right questions. So, oh, it's Mason, it's yours. Come on, Mason. We want to take you back to the beginning, a talk about your childhood. Childhood, yeah. Your dad played rugby for Wales. What are your, are your memory, memories of growing up and did you always want to be a rugby player very good question yes my father did play for well so you've done your research well uh, my first memories well, well everyone knew my father so whenever we went to a rugby club he would always bring me along we went we used to go a lot to a, a club called london welsh where he used to play and he was very popular there as were a lot of the players that played in the 70s. My first memory of going to a rugby match with my father was watching England v Wales at Twickenham. And I didn't have a ticket. But back in those days, it was quite easy 
to enter through the turnstiles with your ticket and then just slightly walk over to the side, pass your ticket back through and get someone else in. So I remember I must have been six or seven, sat on my father's lap watching England versus Wales at Twickenham, something you couldn't get away with uh, in today's age. But that was my first memories. Um, I also played for my first ever club was Tenby Juniors. And that was where my father played as well. He was um, a player at Tenby as well. And it's very nice because in the rugby club, we've got both our shirts framed next to each other. So I ended up sort of following the footsteps really of my father, but I had more caps. So (laughs) I'm the winner. And what was that like? Because is it right that you grew up in London as well? Yes. Um, I grew up in in London. In London and then obviously Tembe. You couldn't get probably two more different places, could you? What what was that like for you? (coughs) Excuse me. Um, Well, my mother and father both from Tembe. So I was born in London and we moved. um, They moved back to Tembe when I was about seven and uh, went to school there and then moved back across to London when I was 15. Uh, and that that's where my London Welsh and Saracens links come from, because I ended up playing for a local team called Effingham first. And then I moved to London Welsh and the setup there was a little bit probably not not more professional, but it was just a better standard for me. And I ended up playing then for the Welsh Exiles. I ended up playing for the county, which was Middlesex, and then worked my way up to the the seconds for London Welsh and then the first team. And then when I was 18 years old, I was, I got, I got scouted to play for Saracens and I moved across the Saracens when I was 18. It's true. Is it, it is, true? It is true. That Sir Clive Woodward phoned you and tried to convey, convince, uh, convince you to play for England what are your memories or uh, of fact correct conversation conversation yes that is true and I was 20 years old and I was playing for Saracens and I was playing quite well so your name sort of gets noticed around and people start throwing your name out there and um, you get quite a bit of good exposure and I remember I was driving back um, with David Flatman in the car. He always drove because he he had a better car and he's he's also uh, probably a better driver. <laughs> and he drove and, and I picked up the phone. He's also a control freak. And I picked up the phone and it was Clive Woodward. And it took me by surprise because I'd played Wales under-19s and Welsh Exiles. And that was sort of the path I was going in to emulate my father. And he asked if I wanted to be included in the 2006 nation squad for England. And it threw me by surprise. I didn't know what to say. So I sort of said, you're going to have to leave it with me, Clive, because um, you've sort of, you've blindsided me here. I wasn't expecting this call. Thank you very much for it. And then a few days later, word was sort of got around that England were trying to poach me. And Graham Henry called me up and he was the incumbent Welsh coach. And he invited me to train him for for Wales. And I said, yep, I'd love to. You know, that that's the that's the the path I want to take. You know, I felt even though I was born in London, all my family are Welsh, all my relatives are Welsh. Um I felt Welsh. I lived in Wales for the for a long period. And that is why I decided to to choose Wales and got then capped Wales A, which means you cannot be uh, you cannot choose another country, and then went on to full cap in two thousand and one. So um, it was the right choice. It was the choice I wanted to to take. And you know, what's Mike Tyndall got now that I haven't? Yeah. <laughs> World Cup winner's medal, ninth in line to the throne. Well, he 
he didn't win the Grand Slam in 2005, did he? No, he didn't. Or eight. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you made the right choice, Tom. Well done. Yeah. Um. So at the age of 17, 18, you joined Saracens and played with some great players. Just Francois Pienaar was coach at the time, was he? And Kieran Bracken and, and lots of others. Um, the, Thomas Castanier? Yep, he was there. Tim Horan, Dan Luger, Danny Grucock. Um, lots of amazing Yanny players. Imagine then at the age of 18, what was that like to to be coached by a World Cup winner and have them players around you? It was a bit starstruck, to be honest. You know, you're young. Um, what we did have was a good group of youngsters there, all around the same age. So you had... You had Flats, David Flatman, you had a guy called Ben Johnson. You had Adam Jones, uh, a Welsh second row, John Dawson, Matt Cairns, Tony Rocks. You know, there was a big group of us that all joined around the same time and worked our way up to the first team. So we had a good, there was a good group of youngsters there. Um, but, I mean, when you're rubbing shoulders and you're training, and we were youth, sort of young professionals at the time. We were combining it with college work. But you're still training full time and you're still learning off some of the world's greatest players. And that's what Saracens was. You know, it's it's similar now, you know, the star studded team, but back then, you know, there was it was like a barbarians team. They were just signing players from all over the the world. And it was it was amazing just to be able to to have lunch, to have a protein shake next to Tim Horan, Thomas Cassian, Danny Grucott, Paul Wallace. You know, it was littered, littered with um, with stars. So it was amazing. Yeah, we spoke to we spoke to Paul Wallace last week on the podcast as well. Actually, and he was he was a great guest and spoke a lot about Ireland and the Lions and his time at Saracens. Yeah, he was he was really good. The coach left Saracens, and is it true that the players took charge of the team? What was that like? Yes, I I think, I can't remember who who left. It may have been Buck Shelford, um, but there was certainly players took over and that was mostly led by um, senior players. So it's a senior player group. Um, Kieran Bracken was, was heavily involved in that, not of getting rid of the coach, but of, of sort of coaching, of bringing the team together. So very strange. I mean, it does happen quite a lot, you know, there's a bit of player power that goes on. And if, if coaches tend to lose their changing room, then basically their time is up and a lot of senior players then have to step in. So the good thing for me was I was young, you know, so it didn't matter too much to me. You know, I was just happy to be there. You know, you're just pinching yourself thinking, you know, I'm, I can actually make it as a, a full on professional for the next sort of 10 years. So you, you, you sort of keep quiet, you get on with your business, you focus on yourself and, and what you can do to improve as a player. And then you sort of let all the politics, you know, deal with the senior players and the management staff at the club. And how was that as a, a youngster? Because you would rugby just put to professional, what, 96? So you would just come into the kind of professional era. What was it like playing with some of the older players who had maybe played in the amateur era and had a few years in the professional year? What was, was the game still in kind of transition or was it very much professional by then? No, it was still in transition. The, the, the professional side came with the training because players didn't have to work. So, you know, you had more access to to the group of players. So you could train every day. Um, you know, prior to that, you know, being an amateur day, people had to work as well. So you had to combine that with with a job. Um, but when rugby to a professional, that was your job. So you could devote all this time. So you could get bigger, stronger, faster. You could spend more time um, on, on developing yourself, on on learning the game, on tactics, on style of play. So it was professional, but there was still an amateur element to it. And that was probably more so the social side. You know, that that seems to have gone now with professionalism. You know, you, people don't tend to go out as much to look after themselves a lot better. We were training all the time, but we were still able to have quite a bit of fun. And, you know, no one, you weren't in trouble for going out after a game or you weren't in trouble if you wanted to pop out to a bar on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. You'd never do it the day before a game or probably two days before the game. Some might. Paul Wallace probably would. <laughs> um, but, you know, he was he was used to that. That was the era he grew up in. So there was, and I, I, sometimes I think 
I had the best of it because you get to you get paid to to do the job that you love but also you can still have a good time with it and you can still go out and there was no camera phones and you know it was it was the norm to have a few drinks after the game now it's a little bit different with how professional rugby's come and the money that's pumped into the game and the money that the players take home you made your debut 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 for wales again japan japan Japan, now what are your memories of that game? Well, yeah, I was on, I got selected to go on tour in 2001, um, which coincided with the Lions tour to Australia. So it was, um, it was, it was like a development tour, but it was, you know, it wasn't deemed as a development tour, it was a full tour, but there was a lot of youngsters coming through and there was a lot more spaces up for grabs in the squads because a lot of Welsh had gone with Graham Henry to, Australia um again I wasn't really expected I didn't I didn't expect to get capped it was just great to be selected um I want you know you obviously want to go um and I didn't put sort of too much pressure on myself I just wanted to do as best I could slowly get involved in the national setup and, and learn as much as I could and I remember I wasn't selected for the first test we played two tests against japan played heavily in a lot of the warm-up games i wasn't selected for the first test then there was a midweek game against pacific barbarians which is a combination of a lot of different players from the pacific islands and i played in that and i remember i was literally going to get smashed by one of their players and i quickly passed it on to mark jones who was a winger he got smashed instead of me he injured himself, which meant that he couldn't play at the weekend in the, for the national team in the second test against Japan. So then I get called up. Um, and as soon as I get called up, as soon as I find out that I'm starting on the wing for my first cap, I obviously ring home. My dad flies out the next day straight to Japan um, and is able to watch me gain my first cap. And, the memories of it was were that it was unbelievably hot. You know, it was July in Japan. The temperature was was so hot. It was so humid. We were coming in at half time, and we're having to put ice vests on. We're having to put ice on our heads. And someone like me, who's who, who's not that tanned, should we say, who's got <laughs> sort of quite pale skin, used to hate playing in the sun because, like, I had to put sun cream on. Otherwise, I'll just get severely burnt. And then the sun cream gets in your eyes and it's a nightmare and you get red eyes and you can't see. So it was always that conundrum of having to put sun cream on. But when? How far back can you go? You have to put it on like five hours before so it wouldn't drip into your eyes. <laughs> uh, and um, and I, I remember all of it, really. I remember most of the team. I remember scoring a try. I scored two tries on my debut. So um, a great occasion, a great way to start off international rugby and, and even better that my family could watch at home um, back in the UK and my father could watch it because it's probably a bigger occasion for him because he played for Wales he, he knows what it takes and he developed me and he helped develop me into an international player so it must have been a big occasion probably bigger occasion for him than it would have been for me I've got a slightly different question though what is the one question that you would Never answer. Are you better than your father? <laughs> well, you kind of you, you said you got more caps. Yeah, I know, <laughs> but I'm, I'm obviously joking. But my you know, my father played during the the seventies era, where it was unbelievably tough to get into that squad because that was an incredible team that was there. You know, you had John Dawes at the start. Uh, you had uh, Gareth Edwards, you had Mervyn Davis, you had Gerald Davis, Phil Bennett, Barry John. You know the Pontypool front row. It was it was an unbelievable team. JPR. So, what position um, did your dad? He was similar to me. Played on the wing and centre. So we sort of, I sort of ended up basically like a carbon copy of <laughs> of my father. So yeah, that's that's a question I never like to answer because it's it's different era, different times, um, and I know how well and how highly regarded he was. 
So Graham Henry was coach of Wales when you made your debut, but I think right saying he left not long after you kind of you came in. Steve Hansen came in. What was it like kind of working for Graham, and then maybe the difference from working with Steve? Yeah, Graham Henry uh, had one game in the 2002 Six Nations against Ireland, and Wales were heavily beaten. So he then left and went. Um, I think he acquired the New Zealand job. So Steve Hansen came in, who was already working under Graham Henry and took over. And Steve Hansen, for me, was probably the best Welsh coach I've had. Um, what he did with a group of young players, because you get this every sort of 10, maybe 12 years, you get a transition of players. You get the old the old sort of guard leaving and then and the new ones coming in. And we were young and quite inexperienced, quite inexperienced physically, but probably rugby intelligent wise as well of knowing how to play the game knowing what to do in certain situations reading the game reading players and the combination of steve hansen scott johnson and strength and conditioning coach andrew hoare was incredible in terms of my player development from turning me into someone quite inexperienced to actually trying to understand the game better and become a better player and to work on basic skills to work on your fitness because Wales weren't the fittest team. We'd probably, when I joined in sort of 2001, 2002, I think we were we were left behind a little bit by the Southern Hemisphere teams. Um, but that trio of coaches turned us around. And from 2002, took a couple of years. It took the, the World Cup in 2003. It took the campaign in 2004. But after that, we ended up winning a Grand Slam in 2005 and that was where sort of the foundations were put in you played rugby for a long time you must have seen some funny practical practical jokes what is the best one you have have seen and who are the jokers in the team um there's quite a lot of jokers in the team you need that um Andy Powell was always a very good joke. I mean, he drove a golf buggy down a motorway, you know, 3.4 miles. Um, not that that's funny to some people. Um, can be quite dangerous, but um, we all laughed uh, when we found out that he was safe and no one was injured. Uh, one of the funniest things I've seen uh, would be a guy called Mark Jones, who I mentioned who got injured, uh, which allowed me to gave my first cap he was a farmer from Bilth Wells and he always had there was always practical jokes going on between him and Dwayne Peel they were the similar um ages they were from the same team the athletic scarlets and Dwayne Peel would just constantly do stuff to Mark Jones like either tie his laces in a massive massive knot of his boots so you know it'd take him like 10 minutes to untie or put loads of bananas in his room, put loads of tackle bags, everything like that in his hotel room until one day in 2007, when we were on tour in the, in the world cup in France and the hotel we were staying at just had random sheep wandering around. And Mark Jones obviously being very familiar with handling sheep, just you got, there's a technique in doing it. I wouldn't be able to do it. You've got to snap their legs together quickly. He put it on his shoulder and he walked it into Dwayne Peel's room. So when we came back from training, Dwayne Peel walked into his room and there was a sheep in there that had, that had urinated, that pooed everywhere. There was little brown pebbles everywhere that had eaten all his kit and he just didn't know what to do. It was just left in there. It was left in there for two hours until... We shepherded it out. I had to open all the doors. <laughs> and it just ran out. That story must must be ingrained in some of your minds because I think I think we spoke to James Hook. Was James Hook been playing then? Yeah, yeah. And that was Jay. Jay we asked the same question to James, and that was his answer as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of something fairly clean <laughs> that's yes, gone on. I can imagine. Yeah, but no, that's yeah. I wouldn't want to walk back into my room to see a see a sheep in there. Was like a sheep in your room, Mason? i'll tell you another one i'll tell you another one that happened to me um something different was my first i've been playing professional rugby for saracens and i bought my first ever car it was a high-end accent off my uncle who's got a 
Hyundai garage still does in Kilgetty in West Wales. And I was so proud of it. And it had sort of, it looked like from a distance it had alloy wheels, but they weren't, they were just hubcaps that looked like alloy wheels. And I remember driving it to training and I was showing all the boys, I was going to look at this, you know, it's, it's got a CD player. It's amazing. <laughs> and we went training. And when I came back from training, they had written some swear words on my car in tomato sauce. It took me ages to wipe it all off. And then when I finished, I eventually wiped it all off. Decided I drove home. The sun was out. And I pulled down the visor and a smoked mackerel, which were available for lunch, fell on my lap. And I thought it was a snake. And on it, like, on <laughs> I'm like Indiana Jones when it comes to snakes. It was like really, really scared me. I was luckily it didn't crash. I threw the mackerel out the window. And I thought, oh, what have they done? I bet they, I bet they hidden another one somewhere. I pulled the other visor down, and there was another mackerel there. And my car stunk for about a week, and I couldn't get rid of the smell. And I thought something's something's wrong here. What they'd done? They'd hidden another mackerel behind my seat in a little pocket on the back of the seat, and another one on the passenger seat. So. <laughs> I never, I never got the smell of smoke mackerel out of my car. No one's going to be passenger in your car then. No, <laughs> got a new one now though, so it's all right. Um, and you formed a, a good centre partnership, or one of the most probably famous ones with with Gavin Henson, kind of during the mid the mid noughties. What was that like to work maybe alongside Gavin, and, and what sort of partnership did you have together? Yeah, um, we we had a really good record together when we both played him at twelve, myself at thirteen. Now he didn't play as many times as I did. So, um, but when we did play, um, it, it just worked. And I think that's what you need. You need to understand your role in a team and whether it be rugby, whether it be a business, you don't try and, you don't try and do someone else's role. You do your role and what you're good at. And that's your job within the team. And his job was his, he was a playmaker. He had vision. Um, he was a very good distributor, good defender, good kicker and my job would be to to look for holes look for spaces look for angles um be a strike runner so the combination worked um and he'd put me through holes he'd miss me i'd be a decoy i'd hold defenders and he was great to play alongside because you need that yin and yang really and he didn't try and do anything that he couldn't do i didn't try and do anything i couldn't do and the combination worked and i think you need that you need that in sport and you need that in especially when you have your roles in the center because you can't have two players that are similar because you become predictable but when you've got a player like Gavin who would be an who would be brilliant as a modern day 12 now like a Bundy Aki you know that type of player um a Jonathan Dante you know someone with vision someone that can find space put the ball there someone with a good passing game um so it worked i mean First time I ever room with Gavin, because that that's what happens when you when you play for Wales. You, you stay in the hotel and centres room with centres, props room with props, second rows room with second rows. Um, I woke up in the morning and his sheets were brown. I thought, oh no, what's he done? He's one of them, is he? Yeah. Um, but what I later found out that it was um, it was the fake tan that he used to wear because. <laughs> Because his theory was, if he looked good, he played good. So I just, thank God I didn't have that theory. Otherwise, I never would have had a good game. No, he didn't need all the, the hair product and the hair gels. and. No, no, didn't need that. I didn't need the silver boots. I didn't need the shave legs. Um, he was unique. Uh, but, you know, I, I look back and think, wow, you know, that that was a little bit different. But it worked for him. And if it worked for him, why would you stop? Definitely. And then... You went to the 2003 World Cup, as you kind of mentioned, in Australia. What are your memories of that tournament and kind of being called up for the tournament and the, the build-up and, and, and being in Australia? I, was, I wasn't, I was what you'd say, a regular starter in 2003. You know, you're still still involved. Um, sort of always either starting or on the bench, really, because there was still a bit of competition. So I featured in the squads. And you're still a little bit nervous when it comes to World Cup selection. And I remember I played, I think I won man of the match on our the last warm-up game before we went to the World Cup. And then the squads were announced after that. Um, and it was it was a huge occasion. You know, everyone wants to play in a World Cup. 
It's they only come every four years. It's massive. You get to tour. You know, part of why I wanted to play rugby and play rugby was for touring because you get to go to places like Australia for six weeks. And it was by far the best tour I've ever been on because rugby was still going through that period of professionalism and amateur, you know, so you'd still you still have the social side to um, to rugby. So, you know, we we flew out and we landed in Manly Bay and it was amazing. Um, you know, we, we went surfing, we, we trained, we ate amazing food and we traveled all the way around Australia, which was great. We stayed in Canberra in some self-contained um, apartments for a while and we were given um, like a daily allowance to buy our own food and cook our own food uh, and you know being quite young and not on much money I realized that you know I could probably make about 100 pound a day if I just ate beans on toast so we started to do that and then my weight started to drop because you get weighed all the time and then they realized what was going on so they, they stopped that and we all had to start eating together but we, we went everywhere. We went to Melbourne. We went to Brisbane. We were up in the Gold Coast. Uh, it was incredible tour. And, you know, we, we weren't expected to do that well because of previous campaigns. But we ended up giving New Zealand a massive run for their money in their final pool game and then nearly beat England in the quarterfinal. And that was that was sort of the moment, I think, where we sort of started to realise actually, you know, we, we can compete with these big teams. I think it was the New Zealand game where it was only the last sort of five, 10 minutes where they pulled away from us. But that sort of confidence we took from that game sort of, I think, flipped Welsh rugby around a little bit. And then all of a sudden, then we started to to perform better. And then, you know, 18 months later, won the Grand Slam with the same group of players. What do you do as a team after a, a World Cup when you aren't playing or training? Yeah, that is a good question, Mason. We There's always committees set up. So there's always a, a sort of a social committee. You don't want to be on the laundry committee. That's the worst one. <laughs> you know, that, that basically, if you're on that committee, it basically means none of the boys respect you because you get elected into these committees because you have to deal with everyone's laundry every day of arranging collection, pick up the lot. It's, it's honestly, it's the worst one. Um, I was always on music, which was quite good. So I'd always go down the front of the bus and play music for the lads. Um, and it was, it was an array of everything. It was 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. The lads used to love Peter Andre, mysterious girl, you know, <laughs> a bit of Eurasia, anything that you could, you could sing along to. Um, so we would we arrange things. Things were arranged like go-karting. That was always a big thing. We'd go go-karting or swimming with sharks. That was a, that was another great one. Um, surfing. Uh, there'd be you'd be able to go on boat trips or bridge walk across Sydney Harbour Bridge. You know, so there's always things like this available in your day. It's golf. You know, some guys wanted to play golf, so. There'd always be committees, which on days off, you had something to do. You had to be a little bit careful. It couldn't be anything too strenuous because even though it's a day off, you don't really want to tire your body out. You want to try and rest your legs as much as possible. So, you know, if it was golf, you make sure you had buggies. If you're doing, if you're doing the Sydney Harbour Bridge Walk, um, just Get be it. careful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course, someone's back. Uh, so there was, there was always stuff to do. And, you know, if you didn't want to do anything, you could go out for a walk wander around the town, go for a coffee. So there's always great things available to do. Um, and before we talk about the 2005 Six Nations, I just want to talk about the 2003 Six Nations, sadly. Um, so you kind of mentioned Wales were in a transitional period and that Six Nations, Wales came last, didn't win a game. Um, what, at the time, why were Wales kind of struggling? Was it the change of management? Was it the change of team? Was it... What, what, yep. what was your opinion? Uh, it's a change of team and youngsters coming in and it's difficult. Uh, the, the, the teams now are different and you look at international teams, they they sort of plan in advance for this and I don't think there was much planning with that. So, you know, you, you sort of gauge when players are coming in and you start to blood youngsters coming in so that when the, when the sort of cycle ends of these players that you get for a, a big group of, a, a big um 
big time, like 10, 11 years, that when they leave, players are coming in and they've already got 15, 20 caps, you know, so the experience is there. So we went through a huge transition stage where it's full of youngsters, you know, myself, Stephen Jones, Dwayne Peel, Gethin Jenkins, Adam Jones, Rob Sadoli, Michael Owen, uh, Mark Jones, um, all these players which are young, pretty inexperienced, and it takes a little bit of time. Not everyone bursts straight onto the scene like I don't know, like a George North or a, a Lewis Rezamet. These guys are special. Um, and they don't come around too often whilst, you know, for a lot of the guys, it's quite it's quite nervous. Yeah. You get quite nervous, you know, because it's it's a huge game. You're playing against blokes that are bigger than you, that are stronger than you, are more experienced than you. So we had to go, we we went through that period. I think it, we ended up losing 10 or 11 games on the bounce. And they were really dark times for, for Wales. And you sort of wonder how you're going to get yourself out of this hole. And losing becomes a habit. The only thing that was good for the group of young players was, was that we were young, you know, so we didn't have the baggage of, of what's gone on with Wales before and the losses before this was, we're still quite new to rugby. So you're still, you're still sort of happy to be there. You're still just focusing on, on yourself and what you can do to improve as a player. So as tough as it was, we still remain positive. And it was a, was a terrible six nations. You know, I remember I played in the game, we lost to Italy and it was, it was tough and a game that we shouldn't have lost. And then I think that might've been the first game. Um, and then we had Ireland, we had England, we had France, and teams were just better than us. Well, we'll, but we, we'll lift it, the mood now. Yeah, but we knew we knew That's there was light at the end of the tunnel because we were young. In 2005, Wales won the Six Nations Grand Slam. What is your stand out memory out of to out of the tournament? Tournament. Um, loads of memories. Like every game had its own memories. I remember 11-9 against England, you know, the first game. I remember the turf being thrown up. You know, England couldn't scrummage. The turf had been recently laid by the Millennium Stadium and there was just chunks just churning out. And I don't know whether it was done on purpose or not, but it stopped England from scrummaging and Gareth Thomas ends up doing a roly-poly at the end when uh, when we'd won on the floor. Um... I remember France and Martin Williams scoring two tries, which got us right back into the game. Um, you know, a game that we were was well away from us at half time. And that was that was a real turning point in that campaign, was that win in France, something that hadn't been done for a while. And we had Scotland away then. And that was the most bizarre game ever. It, I reckon I look at that game and that is probably the most Welsh I've ever seen for an away game. Mm. They were just, you know, when you, when you try it, when you, you know, on the bus going to the stadium, we were obviously playing in Murrayfield, all you could see was red. It was everywhere. You know, we just dominated that stadium and, and a game that we were, we ended up being something ridiculous, like 33 points up after sort of 40 minutes. The game was, was won there and there. But I think just... The final game against England in 2005 against Ireland, I mean, it was perfect. The sun was out. It was a beautiful day, which you don't often get now in the middle of March. And everything was just geared up for us that day. And I remember that the bus journeys in are always special because you sat there quietly. No one's joking around. No one's messing around. You're on the way to the game to play a test match. And it's sort of, you're looking out the window. You try not to think about the game you try not to play it in your head to tie yourself out and I remember you come off for those that, that know Cardiff you come off on that on the Leckworth um, junction and you were seeing people walking into the stadium from there it's like two miles and it, you never see that before the streets were just littered with supporters and um, it was the most magical day and you know we won We the, the, I look back now and it's easy to say that now but I just don't think there was any chance we were going to lose that game. We were that well prepared. We were that confident. Um, the biggest thing we had that day was trying to hide the fact that Hal Luscombe and Reese Williams, both wingers, were out and couldn't play. 
and they we had to warm up Reese Williams before the game, even though he pulled his calf, because Mark Taylor, who wasn't really involved in any of the games, had to play a cameo role, started the final game on the wing, even though he was a centre, played on the wing and had an unbelievable game. And it was incredible. I, I, I just, he didn't play, he hardly played any wing of the whole of his career. But because the combination of myself and Gavin Henson worked was working so well, they said, right, we're going to have to play Mark Taylor on the wing. And he played, and he was fantastic that day. It was incredible. So we're joined today by Matt McKay, the founder of Gold, who are sponsoring the podcast this season. So Gold, uh, can you tell us a little bit about it, what it is? 100%. So Gold is a challenge app. So it's um, a platform where anybody, anywhere in the world, can compete with anybody at anything at any time. Um, it's an app, as I say, centred around positivity, but mainly challenges. So anybody can post a challenge about absolutely anything, and anybody, or as many people as possible, can take on that challenge. There's a live leaderboard, so you can see where you rank against anybody in those challenges. But what does make this app different from TikTok, Instagram, and other apps out there? Well, this is purely a, challenges, a challenge app. We didn't. We're not a social media we just wanted to create a platform for people to be able to enjoy and compete at challenges. So whether you're into sport, baking, trick shots, whatever it may be, this is a platform uh, for people to be able to share and enjoy challenges together in just a really positive online space. So we're called Gold Challenges. We're on all the major social media platforms, our website, uh, goldchallenges.com. Um, yeah, and you can go download the app in any of the, the app stores. And yeah, it's just been an absolute honour to be able to, to sponsor the podcast and, and seeing how much the students come on and, and develop as, uh, as a result of it. And yeah, really, really proud to be, be a part of it. Brilliant. And that's gold, G-O-A-L-D. G-O-A-L-D, yeah. Brilliant. So thank you so much, Matt, for coming down and supporting our students and supporting the podcast. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Just want to stop a little bit. We'll come back on to the Grand Slam in a little bit. We've got a few... Again, random questions. Would you rather game? Yeah. In that case, so, night in or night out? Night in. I'm 43 now. <laughs> a beach holiday or a city break? Um, a beach holiday, but by the pool, because I, I don't like against sandy feet. <laughs> Would you rather talk to animals or speak every language? Ooh, um, talk to animals. Would you rather explore space or explore the bottom of the ocean? <laughs> um, I, I think ocean because I'm not sure I'd like to know what's out there in space. <laughs> and would you rather go forward 200 years and meet your future family or back 200 years and meet your ancestors? I think forward 200 years. I think there's too many wars 200 <laughs> yeah. years ago. I want to take you back to the 5th of February, 2005, Wales v England, Millennium Stadium, and the 77th minute, I'm sure you know what happens. Gavin Henson has a long-range penalty to give Wales the lead. Take me back to that kind of that minute and before the kick and then sort of two, three minutes after the kick when was it was 11-9 you were winning. What are your memories of that time and seeing that Gavin Henson take that kick? Stephen Jones was our kicker. Like He kicked for goal. Um, but Gavin Henson had a, a bigger boot, so he had longer length. And I remember, to be fair to Steve, like he looked at it, he had a couple of looks and he sort of, he wasn't sure whether he'd be able to reach the post. And I remember him just turning away and beckoning Gav over. And and Gav was super confident. Like he was just sort of caught in Charlotte Church at the moment. And he just, he, he was desperate to get it over. I think more so because he wanted to go out with her. And that was his <laughs> thinking behind it. You know, if he gets his kick, then, you know, he's going to, he's going to, be able to do what he wants. He's going to be the king of Wales. The worst thing for me is when you're a centre, you have to chase the kicks just in case, you know, one time out of 50, it bounces off the post and you have to collect it. I think I've chased nearly every kick that's been, you know, during the games I've played and I've probably only ever got two back. Um, and I just remember watching it um, as I chasing it and I could just hear Scott Johnson shouting yeah as it went over because he scott johnson would deliver the tee on um and at that stage then i could just turn around and go because i know it's gone over it but it was it was huge it was a massive kick it was massive for 
for Wales. It was massive for Gavin, and it'll be an iconic moment for forever, I think. You were skipped. You were selected. Selected for the British Lions in 2005 and 2009. But both times you got it and in Cherry before the tower. Before the tour. Before the tour. How do you look back at both of those times and how disappointed were you to were you to miss out on playing for the Lions? Yeah, I mean Injuries happen in sport. You just hope they're at a time where it's not a World Cup. It's not a Lions tour. You hope they're not too serious. Um, yeah, I was selected in 2005 off the back of, you know, the Welsh campaign in the Six Nations. Um, and I injured myself. Uh, I tore the meniscus cartilage in my right knee um, against Ulster at Cardiff Arms Park. And I tried to keep it a little bit quiet. I had a small operation and I turned up to to Lions camp and just made the tour, got on the tour and played three games, uh, warm-up games. But unfortunately, I had to leave. I was injured before the first test. And I, I couldn't um, I couldn't play in any of them. I couldn't even make myself available for selection. And I remember Clive Woodward, who was the coach of the tour, Brian Driscoll got spear-tackled into the ground on the first test. And he came up to me after and said, look, if you're, if you're fit, you you play next week in the te- in the tour and I and I thought oh, you know this is this is the pinnacle of your career you know you get selected for I played three midweek games but you know getting selected in a in a test for the Lions it it doesn't get any bigger and I thought I thought I just but I couldn't do it because I knew if I, you know I'd, I'd be I'd function on seventy percent and you just get shown up I mean looking back. We lost all those games, so it wouldn't have mattered anyway. <laughs> I should have probably done it, but you, you, I couldn't do justice to the shirt and the history and and myself. Um, so yeah, look, I was I was gutted, um, and then selected again in two thousand and nine, and dislocated my shoulder. You know, a week before we met up as a squad, and, and I had to have open surgery on my shoulder to repair it. So hugely disappointed because they were the two big injuries I've only really had, apart from minor ones of little broken bones here and little muscle tears. They were the two big ones. And unfortunately, they came during two big moments of my career. Um, and in, But injuries do happen, and you've got to accept that. That's the downside of, of playing professional sport. You know, you have loads of upsides and loads of wins and, and loads of great times, but you have to deal with the, the disappointments as well. Um, but I look back now and... I was disappointed. I am disappointed that I didn't have more involvement with the Lions. But I also think I've come out of it with, I've come out of rugby with my health. And, you know, not just not just physically, mentally as well. You know, I feel I feel lucky to have left the game and, and still got a life of, you know, being able to play with kids, being able to play golf. I can't run, but I'm a quite fast walker. If I need to be, and um, you know, I've got, I've got the top two inches in my head, you know, which are which are fine as well. I've got no issues there, so I do feel lucky. We have been in contact. Con- we have ta- been in contact with a former team mate of yours, and he has told and about your habit as. Stealing underwear. Do you care to <laughs> explain? <laughs> well, I, I'm pretty sure I know who you've spoken to, um, <laughs> David Flatman. I mean, he, he just tries to stitch me up the whole time. We we lived together for um, quite a few years. Um, you know, he was he was a very early developer. Like he was amazing when he was young. He was going to be the next big thing. Um, he was going to be the next Jason Leonard. And unfortunately, injury occurred, and he um, it sort of hampered him a bit. Um, but he just he just tries to make stuff up to stitch me up. I mean, I actually had to teach him how to cook, which is which is ironic because of the size of the guy. He didn't know how to cook bacon when we first when we first moved together, which was which is a bit strange. Um, 
but no i don't i don't have any weird habits like that and you shouldn't listen to the people like david flatman because they just can't be trusted well he he continues and um this is another interesting one house and slow so he also he also told us to ask your about your about the time you pooed yourself doing <laughs> shuttle shuttle runs shuttle runs <laughs> <laughs> i didn't well i didn't put myself but we were doing we were on an army training camp so we went to this training camp it was, it was called mindset and it was at aldershot and basically they're, they're trying to just hammer you like physically hammer you because it's all in your mind you know as much as tired as you are you know that if it required, if it was your life on the line, you could go that extra 10% and you got that extra 10% in you. It was trying to train your mind like that. And we were doing these horrendous shuttle runs with logs. And sometimes like when your body's getting emptied, you know, you, you either need the toilet, a number one or number two. And I just, I was like, well, I, I need a number two now. <laughs> like I'm that, I'm that knackered. It's just going to, it's going to come out of me. And, we were training on a massive field. I had to run into a bush and then I, I saw a log on the side. So I thought, right, I'll sit on the log. So I pulled my shorts down, sat on the log and then I had to do the business. But then, and forgot, like when you go to the, do a number two, you, you automatically do a number one and ended up, you know, <laughs> urinating on my cycling shorts. So I had to take them off. Then I had to use my socks to, as a, <laughs> as a toilet roll, so I come back to training and I had these rugby shorts on with no underwear on. I had these boots on with no socks on. So by the end of the day, I had blisters all over my feet and chafing <laughs> all in my groin area. So it was it was absolutely horrific. But I think everyone's got a poo story. I mean, David Flam got tackled so hard once that he ended up pooing his pants. So Oh, yeah. We spoke to Flats a few weeks ago on the podcast. And yeah, he's, he's an interesting character, isn't he? Yeah, he is a he's definitely a character, but <laughs> he's also full of lies. So <laughs> just remember that. So we it's for our people that we think have had a big influence or career played with in your career. On your career. If we share these people with you, can you talk to us about how protect in protect be are to your and any memories you have of them well done ben. so when we do our research we try and think of three or four people that you've played with and we pick random people you've we you might not play with them very much or whatever and if you've got a story or your memory of playing with them um what is it under this, this one first Chokshin. ben johnson Ben Johnson. Um, we were both centres, both about the same age. Um, we lived together uh, in a little flat above uh, the co-op in a little place called Oakwood. Any stories on Jono? Um, not not massively, I don't think. No, he was very confident, quite a good-looking bloke when he was um, younger. I sort of just would sort of stand in his slips and try and chat to women that he didn't <laughs> like. Kerry <laughs> Sweeney. Kerry Sweeney. Kerry Sweeney. Um, great bloke. Loads of good fun with, with Kerry. Um, end up getting into a little fight with him before Cardiff were playing the Dragons. And we had a, we had a fairly young number 10 playing for us called Lee Thomas and Kerry was playing for the Dragons and Kerry ended up hitting Lee Thomas late off the ball, you know, just a bit of a macho thing really, just to sort of let him know that he's young and Kerry's meant to be the man. Anyway, I jumped on top of Kerry and started swinging punches at him, uh, which I which I don't normally do, which I'm not sort of inclined to do that, but I thought, you know, what, what's he doing? But anyway, after the game, you should you should have seen the amount of texts I had from the Dragons players of Kerry's own team saying thank you, well done. We've been wanting to do that for years. <laughs> Alan Wynne Jones, yes, one of the one of the greatest players ever, um, record cap holder. He was 
a legend of a bloke. You knew from a young age that he was going to be a massive success, how confident he was, how diligent he was in training, how professional he was. That was the first time I think I looked at someone and thought, you know, this is professionalism at another level, you know, because the amount of of effort he put into training, um, into his recovery, um, was was a level ahead. And this guy, you know, he's only 19 at the time, 19 or 20. Um, he was in charge of the Love Spoon in 2007. So the youngest player in a, in a Welsh tour has to carry a Love Spoon with him, which is a Welsh tradition. It's a, it's a spoon that is carried around with us. I think it's a romantic gesture, but it ends up being a bit of a tour mascot. And he had this massive wooden spoon he had to carry around and he had to get on stage in front of 500 people and explain what it was and I was thinking oh here we go now he's going to be he's going to be nervous he's going to fluff his lines but he just delivered an amazing speech I'm like wow you know I couldn't even do that and I'm 27 28 years old you know you just you just knew that he was destined um for big things and I think what's the most impressive there's a couple of impressive things for me one is how long he's lasted at the top level of his game because you know it's it's all well I don't know, your, your body holding up, but your mind as well, you know, have that want to have to do it. You know, he's done it for so many years and he just kept going and going and he never let his standards drop. And I suppose the other thing was how long his hair lasted because <laughs> when, he first, when he first joined, you thought, oh, he's not long left here. There's only a couple of haircuts left in him, but, you know, and he's not he's not been a turkey either. So he's, he's done well with that <laughs> caffeine shampoo, I think. So you played rugby for Saracens in England and then Cardiff Blues, obviously in Wales. Two different leagues. What's the difference between the two leagues? Maybe is the standard different or what What, what was your experience of the two different leagues? Um, I didn't think the standard was too different. Um, the travelling is definitely different because um, in the English Premiership, which it is now, it's, you know, the furthest team is Newcastle. Whilst... In the in the Celtic League, you know, you would have to travel to Ulster, Munster, Leinster, um, and then it would be I um, Italy as well. Now it's South Africa, so there's there's quite a lot of travelling now. Um, but I didn't see a massive difference um, at all. And people talk about the difference. You know, it's there might be more of a gap now between Welsh teams and English teams because of what's going on with Welsh rugby and, and the wage cap, and you know, Wales being on. All Welsh teams being on 4.5 million, so it's difficult to compete. But back then, I really didn't notice too much of a difference. Um, I would say mo- mostly the traveller and the time it took. Yeah, and you said that now, yeah, there's more teams involved and traveling's a lot. And as you mentioned, for the Six Nations or during the Six Nations, there was a bit of um thing with Wales striking and with the wage- wages. What do you think needs to improve or how Welsh regions improve kind of another standard or, or or rugby at the moment because it's going through a bit of a, a, a dark moment at the moment. Yeah, they have to start looking within um their own academies, their own systems to develop players more now. Every team is on four point five million pound, which is quite a big drop from um last year. But it's to make it more sustainable. It's to it's to prolong Welsh rugby because if you keep going like or if we keep if we kept going like we were, I think then certain teams would cease to exist. So it's for the greater good. It's to make rugby sustainable in Wales. Um, what you need to see now is more investment put into academies to bring players through. And it might take a bit of time. It might take three or four years until these until we start seeing the the reward for this. Um, but it's it was done for the right reason. It was it was done so that we can continue to play um, professional rugby in Wales. So um, I would say to people who are Welsh um, regions, not well, Welsh team supporters, to to stick with it because you're going to go through this period now where we will struggle against some of the bigger teams that have got massive wage bills. You know, some teams in the league have probably got nine to eleven million pound wage cap bills, which is a big difference between four point five. Uh, we've lost a lot of players to different countries now because there there just isn't the money to play pay a lot of players now and it's a short career you can see why they've left they've gone out of france to um, uk based teams to japan um so you're losing players but what hopefully will happen is that it will force teams to 
to recruit from within and we'll see more development and we'll see more access to players because we still produce players, but you, you don't see them playing top flight rugby because there's a lot of other players in their way. So hopefully we get access to more players and it'll be, it'll be for the greater good eventually. You have a podcast called Flats and Shanks that you do with former teammate David Flatman. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Yes, thank you. Good bit of advertising on here. Yeah, it's called Flats <laughs> and Shanks. Um, we've done it for seven years now, and it started off as there was no one, no one else really doing a rugby podcast. We started off around the same time as the rugby pod, which is Jim Hamilton and Andy Goo. And now we we just do it because we're used to doing it. It's sort of part of our weekly routine. Um, the more we do it, the less rugby we talk about. Um, we, we end up probably one or two minutes on rugby. The rest is what we're watching on TV. Uh, I don't know if any issues have come up, um, what we've been doing. I mean, recently Flats went for an ear test. Um, that took 10 minutes for him to explain that, uh, that he's got <laughs> perfect hearing and that his wife is in the wrong for mumbling her words. Um, <laughs> and and um, there's no script. We we just log on like this on a Zoom call and sometimes you can't even bother to, to see how each other are. We just say, you ready? You ready? Yeah, let's go. And we just wing it. And then I edit it and I put it out and um and then that's it and we seem to have a cult following which is which is a bit odd so it, it ends up being about cars um about the corporate life we've been doing about food and a lot about um flats kids and wife no brilliant and say so podcast in the last few years have, have really boomed and yeah you, you were one of the original kind of rugby ones and have sustained it for such a long period of time you've done Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of episodes now. I, I looked through the other day and there's hundreds of them. And it's yeah, yeah. amazing to keep it going for as long as you have. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, we don't have to do it. You know, we, ju- we just we just do it. No one's saying you've got to do a podcast, but it just becomes the norm. Every week on the podcast, we like our guests to ask questions to each other. So we get a guest to ask a question, but they have no idea who the question is going to be for. And this week's question actually comes from our previous guest, who is your former teammate, Paul Wallace. Um, Paul's question was very simple. What is the highlight of your career? Um, the highlight of my career would be my first cap. It's difficult because that you do get highlights, you do get 50th caps, you do get selective alliance tours. But from a young age, when you play in professional rugby, you'd always look at the program and you'd always seen the team on the program. And there'd always be a, like a little asterisk or there'd be your name in bold if you were capped internationally. And I always wanted that. I always thought, I always want that next to my name. And I just thought, after your first cap, no one would be able to ever take that away from you. And you'll always be able to have that little asterisk next to your name, which signifies an international. Brilliant. And can you do the same for us, please? Can you think of a question for our next guest? But we're not going to tell you who the guest is. It is a, is a sports person. The question can be absolutely anything you want. Okay. Um, what would be your favourite pre-match and post-match meal? Good question. I would just say, like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens to all podcasts. We really appreciate it. Appreciate it. It please continue to leave free. Reviews. Reviews. Reviews and pass or podcast into your friends and family. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Tom. We really enjoy speaking with you and it means so much to us as a score to be able to have the opportunity opportunity to speak with you thank you mason thank you very much you've been a great host you've asked some amazing questions um i've really really enjoyed this and i hope you do many many more podcasts and i hope everyone leaves some really positive reviews
because I've enjoyed it. Bye. <laughs> Bye, Mason. So, Mason, Tom has just gone. You did that podcast on your own or with me, but a lot of it was on your own. How did you feel that went? Good. Good. Did you enjoy it? Yes. What did you enjoy most about the podcast? Uh, did it good the sick the podcast? Did you like listening to what Tom Tom had to say? Listen to his stories. Yeah. Yeah. And did you enjoy asking the questions? Yeah, sure. Yeah, your questioning and your confidence is is coming along. How do you find the questions? Do you enjoy reading them and talking to to people? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well done, Mason. It's a pleasure to have you on again. So well done. Are you enjoying doing the podcast? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next week. Bye. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine.